You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello and welcome to what I would really call our new podcast on the Middle East, North Africa and Gulf regions. We're calling it MENA Gulf 140. And to remind you, because we did have a crack at this last time, there is method to the madness or the madness of the title. And that is that our regular guest, Dr. Harry Hagopian, international lawyer, consultant, analyst, we're going to get Harry to basically discuss the realities of the Middle East, North Africa region and Gulf region in just 140 seconds. That is a proper challenge, not easy for anyone. So bear with us. We may have secondary questions to somewhat cheat a little bit with that because there is much going on and much to talk about. Harry, how are you? I'm fine, James, and thanks for suggesting that I'm going to tackle the issues in the MENA and Gulf regions in 140 seconds when people have failed to do that in 140 weeks. (laughs) Or possibly years. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't want to go that far because I didn't want to swing totally into pessimism. And then we'd have to get down to when certain states were defined and named and, oh dear, we could get into all sorts of trouble if we're going to go over 100 years, I think. Exactly. So, Harry, launching straight in, it obviously hasn't escaped, I think, the world's attention with the whole US presidential elections. And we obviously touched on it before. One has to presume now by January 2021, Joe Biden will be in the hot seat. And of course, that leads to a great deal of speculation. So this is going to be the first of those sort of triple pronged questions, I would say. Okay. Um, and, And the obvious one for me really is to look at Israel Palestine when it comes to to Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. And I've been, as I usually do, uh, been across your social media and listening and watching you on YouTube uh, with your intuitive reactions and a little bit of uh, COVID and, and in fact, Nagorno-Karabakh, which we will come on to a little bit later on. Now, what I found interesting about your analysis of Biden and Israel-Palestine is that you forecast that there would be a few cosmetic and a few radical steps Now, in 140 seconds, and I won't hold you by the throat to that, what are these steps in your view? Well, when I said in my YouTube episode uh, a couple of days ago, James, that there might be some cosmetic and some radical changes that uh, President-elect Joe Biden would introduce into the Palestine brief, what I meant is simply that he would tackle some of what uh, President Trump has done. Uh, the U.S. administration has been unfair and unjust and severe when it comes to the Palestinians, and it has basically tried as much as possible to force them to uh, kowtow to American and Israeli dictates. Now, when I talk about cosmetic reactions, it would probably mean, as far as I can see and I cannot prophesy, that he would reopen the Palestinian mission in Washington, D.C., and he would reopen again the U.S. consulate in Arab East Jerusalem in order to cater for the demands of the Arab Palestinians in uh, the country. Now, a little bit more radical, but desperately needed, I think, he would refund 
the UNRWA, the UN agency that deals with refugees, and he would also allow some funding to the Palestinians via different projects such as uh, USAID and others. All this in order to make sure that the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian institutions do not crumble, because if that happens, it's going to lead to far, far more confusion and violence. And to be honest with you, that is not good for Palestinians, but that is not good for Israelis as well. Now, second part of that question, really, and you have, of course, touched upon it there. If we were to post-mortem Donald Trump's legacy specifically on Palestinians, what would that be, do you think? Anti-Palestinian and pro-Israeli, which is fine. Every single American administration that I can think of has been pro-Israel, and the Americans and the Israelis go complimenting each other by saying that they're the best allies in the world. That's fine. Uh, Palestinians know that. The world knows that. But there is a difference between that and saying that the Americans are also going to be a broker of peace in the region while tilting completely to one side. And Obama has done it, Clinton has done it, many of the American presidents have done it because they want to protect Israel and they stand by Israel when it comes to serious issues. However, Trump completely went overboard when he was using the measures that he uses, which are really pedestrian, which are really humiliating, like closing a mission, like closing a consulate, like defunding the United Nations agencies, not talking to the Palestinians, telling them nothing will happen, you will become pariahs unless and until you basically kneel down and accept my dictates. And that cannot happen. And that's one of the reasons why the Palestinians are cautiously optimistic with the Biden administration, not because it is going to be pro-Palestinian, not even because it's going to be objective, fair-minded and neutral in the normal understanding of those terms, but because it will not be vindictive and it will not try to force Palestinians to basically uh, give up on all their aspirations. Now, I'm going to go to prong three of this, actually, Harry. And that leads me, what you've just said, to what might be a more direct question about the two-state solution, which we've dismissed a bit in recent times because it's been very bleak under Donald Trump. But I'm going to do it in this way, Harry. So a comment now, if you please, on the death of veteran Palestinian chief negotiator Saeed Arakat, which I know you have done on, on on other forums. The PLO's Secretary General, who died a few weeks ago of COVID-19 complications, although he did have health concerns prior to that. Now, many are saying in the aftermath of his death that his work should go on, and, and not least, actually, the UN Secretary General. And my question to you, Harry, is how can we still talk about negotiations towards a just and sustainable two-state solution? Did it not finally die and is buried alongside Erekat? That's an interesting point that you raised, James, and uh, uh, let me sort of answer it in, in, in two uh, different uh, sets of answers. The first is that Saab Ariqat was Dr. Saab Ariqat, who is a son of Jerusalem. He was born in Jerusalem, lived a lot of his life in Jericho. He was the chief negotiator. He was the eternal optimist for the two-state solution. He could be irascible. He could be precocious. He could be insistent sometimes, but he could also be very charming. What everybody, friends and foes alike, 
acknowledged about uh, Sabi Arikat that is that he was wedded to the Palestinian cause and he desperately wanted to see two states, Israel and Palestine, standing next to each other and to achieve that result uh, by peaceful means and not by violence. However, now he's dead, a proponent of the two-state solution, and the question is, what happens next? Of course, the UN and the European Union and other organizations and states would say, we want a two-state solution, because that has become the mantra, and nothing has moved uh, since uh, over the last 10 years, certainly over the last four years with the Trump presidency, and therefore my answer to that is simply that if the two-state solution is no longer viable, in my opinion, the one-state solution is even more not viable. So where do we stand? And that is why now a lot of the younger generations of Palestinians, writers and analysts, and just ordinary people are saying, you know what, it's no longer a question of one state or two states. It's a question of being together in a rights-based solution. In other words, everybody, Arabs and Jews, Palestinians and Israelis, have the same rights. And that is going to be very difficult to achieve because the whole setup of Palestine-Israel is skewed in favor of one, Israel, and against Palestinians. And to redress that imbalance is going to take a lot of nimble diplomacy. Do you know that's only a few seconds short of the 140 that you've been allocated for a very di- for a very difficult <laughs> answer. So you you did well there, I must say, because I was thinking we might have to recalibrate and call it Mina 100 because you were pretty much <laughs> spot on 100 seconds for the others. Harry, before we shift into the Gulf for a quick comment, um, Jordan. Now you were born in Jordan, weren't you? Yes, I was. And don't worry, this, this, this little preamble has nothing to do with the 140 seconds. Get away okay. with it. Okay. Um, now, we talked a bit off mic about the um, parliamentary elections in Jordan. And the question really, because I'm curious to uh, get your specific insight into this, is the sort of centrality of Jordan and its role in the region at the moment. What is that exactly? Jordan is, as you said, is my birthplace, but it is also a kingdom that I'm very fond of. And one of the reasons is that I have worked uh, in Jordan with many Jordanians and you acquire a certain affinity to the way they think and the way they deal uh, with issues. But more to the point, answering your question, and this is where the 140 seconds start. (laughs) Jordan has been viewed as a moderate Arab nation, state, and therefore the United States and the Europeans have relied on Jordan to keep things calm in a region that is very volatile, and Jordan is next to Palestine and next to Israel, so bordering Syria as well, bordering Iraq, a lot of volatility and a lot of lack of stability, so Jordan has been there to help moderate things. So in a sense, yes, Jordan is a sense of moderation, the king, the father, King Hussein, the late King Hussein, and now his son have tried to maintain that same uh, tradition. It hasn't been easy because Jordan suffers from dire economic 
problems and uh, the Jordanians are struggling. Now, that moderation, that geostrategic position of Jordan is changing, is shifting, certainly shifted a lot under Trump because Trump was looking more at the Gulf states as a catalyst of moderation. So Jordan felt a little bit left out. But I hope that with Biden, who has 40 years of political experience in the Senate and elsewhere, would actually reinsert Jordan into the equation fully. And again, I'm going to let you off this for the 140. Don't we need more sensible, moderating states in the region? We certainly need more moderating states in the region. The problem with the whole region is that it is all volatile, it is all restive, the ruled and the rulers, the citizens, if you call them citizens, and their political leaders do not see eye to eye. We had an Arab Spring in 2010, 2011, what I call now the revolutionary uprisings. Now we have batch two or mark two of that revolution. So the whole place really is uh, in a tense, volatile uh, situation. So this is why diplomacy is necessary. And this is why uh, President Trump's and his Secretary of State Pompeo, who, for instance, just to throw in an example, James, uh, he was in Israel this week and he went around saying, amongst other things, we are going to consider now the BDS, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement as being anti-Semitic. I have a problem with that, and I have a problem with a lot of other things that uh, the U.S. administration has done. The question is to try and address the rights of the people of this region and not only align themselves, the U.S. or even some European powers, with the rulers just because their interests lie there. What the rulers do and what the citizens seek aren't always uh, the same thing. And we see this in the elections that happen, parliamentary elections, other referenda across the whole MENA region. Yes, of course. Harry, thank you. Right. We will move towards the Gulf now. I know a region that you value very highly and have been in and out of many, many times over the years. And a particularly beautiful state, I'm told. I've not been, but I have uh, friends that have, and I know you have and have spoken with much affection about it, because actually it's the 50th anniversary of the Sultanate of Amman, Harry. And there have been changes of leadership. There, there have been changes in the state. So give us your reflection on that. It is. Just to say that the Gulf, the Arab Gulf states, the Gulf Cooperation Council consists of six Gulf uh, states. They used to be an example of development, of progress, of good normal relations until the embargo against Qatar by Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, which pretty much threw the cat amongst the pigeons. And since then, things have not been as stable as one would have wished them to be. Having said that, yes, the Sultanate of Oman or Oman, Uh, simply, is a very wonderful place. If you go there, you see civilization. Interesting, because Oman is probably the oldest uh, independent state in the Arab world. And uh, it used to be called, if I'm not mistaken, the Sultanate of Muscat and Oman. And then in the 1970s, the late Sultan Qaboos bin Said bin Taimur, the ruler of Oman, who died, changed it simply to Oman. And now it is ruled by Sultan Haytham bin Tariq al-Said. And basically, 
what they are celebrating is the national independence of Oman from Portugal. And Oman has been one of those stable countries, alongside we spoke of Jordan, I could think of Oman as well, that has helped keep things moving without too much violence. Excellent. I must say it's um, those that I know that have traveled there say it's um, very beautiful as well. It's a very beautiful place. And uh, the whole ethos of the Omani citizens is different. It's a hybrid Muslim uh, theosophy that also has an openness toward the others. You do not feel that you're looked upon as being a foreigner or being this or being that. It's far more inclusive and it's a really nice place. And there are many, many international organizations that are situated in Oman. And now with the new ruler, I think there is going to be a new renaissance, a new movement forward, both economically and strategically uh, for the country. And let us not forget also that it's been very discreet, but very active in diplomacy. When President Obama was the president of the United States, the whole JCPOA non-nuclear deal that was reached at the time, which President Trump simply abrogated or withdrew from, was first negotiated secretly in Oman before it became a public negotiation. Well, that's interesting to hear Oman's role in that, because... It obviously doesn't necessarily seek to put itself, you know, in in a messianic front and centre position with these things then. It seems to just be a quiet, you know, negotiator in, in the region. It does. And because it's a very old state, uh, as I said, the oldest independent state, as far as I know, uh, in the Arab world, I would say that it's also got a lot of history. Its history is not new. It's not glitzy. It's much more settled. And it has a lot of experience in dealing with state affairs uh, since before independence and after independence. And of course, we in the UK have very, very strong relations uh, with Oman as much as we have with the other GCC uh, countries as well. Well, let's just sort of segue and move slightly sideways and talk about Kuwait as well, because if we're talking about changes of leadership, um, obviously Kuwait's had a change of leadership at the start of this rather memorable year of 2020. And of course, most people uh, that know little of Kuwait will probably look back to the early mid 90s, when of course, it was at the heart of the, the first Gulf War. Tell us a bit about how Kuwait these days is a sort of major player for positivity and peace in the region, if indeed that's true. That is quite true, actually. Kuwait is suffering a lot from the economic turmoil that is upsetting the whole world, and it is certainly upsetting the MENA and Gulf region as well. But you're absolutely right. The late uh, Sheikh Sabah Ahmad al-Sabah, who died toward the end of September of this year, so we're only talking less than two months ago, he was known as the wise man of the region. And he was also, by some, described as being the dean of Arab diplomacy because he's the kind of person who always wanted to negotiate, who always wanted to find inclusive win-win solutions. It's very interesting that in the 1991 war, when Iraq under Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, then 
Sheikh Sabah al Ahmad, he tried to sort of reconcile with Iraq, bring Iraq back into the Arab fold, and settle the differences between Kuwait and uh, between Iraq. And of course, he also played a major role until his death in trying to heal the ructions, the divisions within the uh, Gulf states. As I said, regarding the embargo by the UAE, by Saudi Arabia and by Bahrain against Qatar. And the man radiated that. I mean, he was an old man. He was a wise man. He was an experienced uh, man. And you could see that he was desperately trying to be the father of the uh, Gulf uh, region and trying to heal those uh, ructions. So in a way... He was, and his uh, successor, Sheikh Nawaf al-Ahmad al-Jabir al-Sabah, I think will follow pretty much in the same line of rule that his predecessor followed for Kuwait. So a lot is happening in the region. The MENA is in an uncertain state. The Gulf is also in an uncertain state. And of course, those Gulf countries, all six of them are wondering how the relationship between them and the United States is going to change with a Biden uh, presidency. And in a sense, I think there will be a change, but the change will not be radical. It will be discreet. It will be focused on issues from the war in Yemen, from the embargo upon Qatar, from human rights issues, uh, but not in a confrontational way, because that is not the way that Biden, as far as I know, and I've watched him as vice president during Obama's presidency, that's not the way he deals with issues. And indeed, from what you've said, perhaps not the way that the, the new leaders in those Gulf countries of Oman and Kuwait deal with issues either. So grounds to be positive, I would hope. I would hope so, uh, too, that there are grounds uh, for being positive. Uh, fingers crossed, because it's a region, as a lot of the analysts of the region and people who live in the region would tell you, that there is so much potential, so much resources, so much hope for the region, if it is only channeled properly, minus the corruption, minus the dictatorships, minus the them and us mentality, and the region can really produce far more and play a far bigger role than it has at the moment. Excellent, Harry. We'll, we'll take a positive however we get it, I must say. And I'm going to conclude with my final question. I can, of course, offer you a final thought should you have one. But my final question shunting slightly sideways. We said this on the last MENA Golf 140. Nagorno-Karabakh, of course. It's oh, yeah. sti- still being spoken about. Obviously, you've done countless pieces of commentary on this because you've been asked and because, of course, you have, have an interest being an Armenian. But after the six-week war, there's certainly been quite a bit of popular anger in Yerevan over the sort of territorial losses. And we've seen Russia, of course, cement its position. And to an extent, Turkey, they've come out of it reasonably well. The question for you, and it's one you've raised in, in, your, in your YouTube musings, why was Armenia so isolated in the international arena, do you think? Because the world was disinterested in what was happening in the southern Caucasus. It feels that it's so far away that it doesn't really interest anybody except Russia, because for Russia, the southern Caucasus is its near abroad. And that has been the case for many, many decades and certainly is also the case with present 
Putin. And it also interests Turkey because Turkey is becoming more robust, more demanding, some would say more irascible under President Erdogan. And he wants to sort of create this pan-Turkic neo-Ottoman idea in that uh, part of the world. So other than Turkey and Russia, there's hardly been anybody who's really raised a voice or said anything. The European Union has been pretty mute. The Germans have been very sort of, oh, let's be consensual about this. How can you be consensual when there is a war raging on? And the French, the the French president raised his voice as well, but he couldn't really do much. The Americans were totally uh, out of it because, uh, well, Trump probably doesn't even know where the Southern Caucasus are, uh, but also because he's busy with his attempts to reverse the verdict of the people in the election. So in a sense, I think that Armenia found itself alone. And I also must add that Armenians bear some of the blame for that, because for 30 years, this conflict has been going on, and it should have been dealt with. There should have been some territorial compromises, and Azerbaijan and Armenia should have struck a deal. The problem with such conflicts is the longer they go on, then the more frozen they become, the more intractable the positions of their peoples become. And therefore, when a war happens, and one side loses, and the other side wins, then the winner is overjoyed, but the loser is crushed, and therefore the anger comes out, and that is what we are seeing today. There is a ceasefire. Let's hope that this will be the first baby step towards some sort of a healing of the wounds that have pretty much bruised that whole region. Wow. Bang on... um... 140 seconds for something that you have a strong interest in. Harry, outside of any timings, and you know, to be honest, it feels a bit counterintuitive to hold you to a number of seconds to come out with a response in, in this um, it's interesting you know, because complex on region. Hand, on the one hand, James, 140 seconds is a very interesting uh, gimmick, if I can use that. <laughs> you can. You actually came up with. And I thought it was very clever of you because you made sure that I did not ramble on and that I gave very short, specific, lawyerly answers. In one sense, it's good and it works for us lawyers, but it doesn't work for us politicians because it's sometimes very difficult to try and pack everything into 140 seconds, particularly when you're talking about a region where it's never a monochromatic view in the sense that it's either one or the other. There's so many elements that have to be taken together in order to come to any fair understanding of the region. And this is why uh, sometimes I feel like I'm rushing and uh, and trying to, to get there before you tell me my alarm clock has pinged. But I still want you to hold me to it because it's an extra motivation for me and the adrenaline is working. Mind you, not that I need it, but never mind. Absolutely. And and that, you know, yes, it's a bit gimmicky. Yes, it's a bit restrictive. But as you've said, in fact, even on your other channels, really, you're not going to be able to do a thorough analysis of any one of these realities because... Not only is that impossible, but they are ever moving. And so one one analysis of, of on 
a Friday is not going to be necessarily the same as, as it is on a Monday. So it's very difficult. So we might as well, as you say, stick to those prodding points and encourage people to read a bit more, think a bit more deeply and uh, take exception to what we're saying if, if they want to. It's completely their right. spot on. And you know what? I was just thinking this minute, I just thought about this. I mean, racing against the clock when it comes to your 140 seconds I do the same thing with my YouTube episodes because if I go over a certain number of minutes, I cannot upload the episode. So in a sense, it's always how much can I cram in in order to let the listener or the viewer then take that and do their own research? Because as you just said, and as I keep saying ad nauseum, all I do is food for thought. I plant seeds. You can water those seeds. You can burn them. You can throw them in the trash bin. You can ignore them or you can follow them up. It's up to you. Well, you know what, Harry, we probably should stop it there, particularly in light of what we've just said. But, you you know, I, I appreciate you very much. You never set yourself out to be the oracle. You never say that your analysis is better than anyone else's. It's just a case of, look, here it is. Here's the way I see it. These are the realities as I see them and, and a little bit of um, contemporaneous commentary on that and a look to the future. But you've always said, I'm not a prophet. You've never set yourself up as an oracle. This isn't definitive, but how can it be? So... Yes, we we are sounding like a broken record, but I thank you for your time. Always fascinating for me and I hope for everybody else as well. And we have managed to make it two in a row, Harry. So let's stick to our one a month if we can. No, no, no. We'll stick to one uh, every month and we'll also stick to the 140 seconds. It teaches me discipline at my decaying age. And yes, what I say is the world has enough oracles and prophets. Lots of them are false oracles and false prophets anyway. So I know that I'm vulnerable. I know that these are only my thoughts. You might like them. You might not like them. Dear listener, it's entirely up uh, to you. I reach out. You don't need to take it in. Harry, let's hope um, all all is well during the final weeks of lockdown here in the UK. And I'll look forward to speaking to you again next month. Let's hope that we can do something in better conditions before Christmas. And I'm talking about viruses, not politics here. Absolutely. Looking forward to a bit of face-to-face, Harry. But until then, thanks very much and nice to talk to you. Take care.